Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin', brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is New York Times best-selling author Emily St. John Mandel. She is the winner of the Arthur C. Clarke Award and the Morning Times Tournament of Books for her previous novel, Station Eleven. Her latest novel is The Glass Hotel, published by our friends at Alfred A. Knopf. Emily, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to have you here. And before we talk about your books, Emily, I would like to ask you a question that I'm asking every author that I'm interviewing right now, and it is a two-part question. Part one is, how are you personally dealing with the circumstances surrounding COVID-19? And two, how are you dealing with the marketing of your book during these strange times? Um, I'm personally doing okay. I mean, you know, I'm calling from New York City, so hello from the red zone. Um, yeah, you know, it's dire here, kind of outside my apartment. Uh, I hear ambulances day and night, and I have friends who are sick. It seems like they're going to be okay. Um, yeah, so the situation here is horrible, um, but I'm personally doing okay. You know, I've, I've left the house once in the last three weeks because I had to mail some letters, but got weekly grocery delivery. The reason why we bought this place is got a big terrace. So I feel incredibly lucky about that. Mm. So yeah, I've just been, um, you know, getting a bit of reading done, container gardening on the terrace, mm. uh, trying to figure out how to homeschool. That's a curveball I wasn't expecting. I've got mm. a four-year-old. And um, yeah, you know, day to day, it's all right. And the, uh, yeah, the second part, the, uh, the promotion of a new book, um, that's actually been better than I would have imagined, to be honest. So I had a 25-city book tour, which is obviously canceled. Mm -hmm. So when I started getting these proposals for Zoom and Crowdcast events, I thought it would be kind of creepy and weird. It's not. You know, you really do feel like you're connecting with people. I'd obviously rather be there live, but, you know, even if it's not the same, it's something. So, yeah, I've actually really been enjoying those, uh, those digital events. And, you know, I think that, I think that to be honest here, the people who are really um, suffering from bookstores being closed, the writers who are suffering from bookstores being closed, it's not, um, it's more, I think it's, I think it's catastrophic for debut writers and writers from small presses. You know, I think uh, just in the spirit of acknowledging privilege here, um, the Glass Hotel kind of coming on, coming on the heels of Station Eleven, I'm, I'm aware that I'm in this incredibly fortunate position of having a real uh, marketing and publicity budget behind the book and uh, a lot of goodwill going in from the uh, from the success of the previous novel. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been fine for me and I've also been acutely aware that it's not fine for a lot of other writers. Right. Thank you so much, Emily. And congratulations on the homeschooling. Um, I have a three-year-old who will be turning four next week, uh, so I'm very sympathetic and kind of know what you're dealing with. Um, yeah, I have to loosen up a little bit with screen time. I don't know about you. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's it's necessary, isn't it? Um, Emily, before we talk about your breathtakingly fantastic new novel, The Glass Hotel, I do want to ask you one question about Station Eleven, and that book okay. opens uh, with an actor dying on stage during a performance of King Lear, and we soon learn that this is our opening view on a global pandemic. 
a flu-like virus that begins killing people at an exponential rate. And that novel, of course, then jumps into the future and shows us, amongst many other things, how art survives after the collapse of civilization. I'm certain I'm not the first person to have asked you about this, Emily, but what are your thoughts on having written that novel at this moment in history? Is it a distant memory, or are you like, of course this is happening, or neither? Uh, maybe a little bit of both. Um, you know, what I've heard a lot on Twitter um, is that is people saying that Station Eleven was um, prescient in some way, but I don't feel like I predicted anything. Um, what became clear to me when I was writing Station Eleven, when I was reading about the history of pandemics, is that, I guess one way of putting this is that epidemiologists talk about pandemics in the same way that seismologists talk about earthquakes. Which is to say that nobody is talking in terms of if there will ever again be another earthquake. Mm. There will always be another earthquake. There will always be another pandemic. Um, and, you know, so I guess that research led me to see pandemics as just something that happens to us, which is not to minimize the horror of the current moment in any way, but just that, that they're a kind of inevitability. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I don't see Station Eleven as having predicted anything, but I think the truth is it was always going to be another pandemic. Right. Thank you so much, Emily. And your new novel, um, The Glass Hotel, is concerned with many characters, but the first characters we are introduced to are Vincent and Paul, a half-sister and brother. And in an early scene, the two of them are out dancing on New Year's Eve in 1999, and the world around them is concerned with Y2K. Their friend Melissa asks them, do you find yourself secretly hoping that civilization collapses just to see what happens? And first, Emily, I think you and I are around the same age and have memories of Y2K, but some of our younger listeners do not. Can you, ex yeah. Yeah, can you explain the strangeness surrounding Y2K? And after that, can you talk about this feeling that Melissa is expressing with her question, do you find yourself secretly hoping that society collapses just to see what happens? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so Y2K, we thought that all of the computers in the world, including, you know, air traffic control and, um, yeah, you know, traffic lights and, like, the grid and everything else, that all those computers might uh, stop working, um, that systems might go down with catastrophic errors. So it was such a weird moment where nobody had any idea how bad it was going to be. And I remember, like, I, had, I knew people who had those weird coding jobs, so they're just, like, going through pages of code, turning 99 to, like, oh, oh, you know. Um, yeah, it was, it was a really weird time. We thought planes might fall out of the sky on the stroke of midnight. It turned out to be kind of a non-event, but for anybody who doesn't remember it, like, it was serious enough that serious people were, like, holed up with supplies in remote cabins just in case civilization collapsed. Like, it seemed possible. Um, and, you know, for around the same age, maybe you had a similar thought as I did, which, you know, as memory serves, in that chapter, Melissa's about, um, oh, I don't remember, let's say 19 or something, which mm -hmm. is about how old I was. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's the kind of thought that you have when you're like 18, 19, 20, and probably not much older. That kind of, uh, the sort of juvenile longing for adventure. Like, well, maybe it would be really catastrophic, but that would be really exciting. And then, you know, you get a little bit further into adulthood, and it's like, no, it would be horrible. <laughs> you know, right. I don't want civilization to collapse. That would not be exciting. That would be a horror movie. Um, so, yeah, that was... I, I, I wasn't actually, like, hoping civilization would collapse, but I kind of remember that mentality. It's, um, 
it's almost like sweetly immature, but I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people had it around that age. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to imagine that a lot of folks are probably thinking that right now. Um, thank you, Emily. Another large story in this novel is the story of Jonathan Al-Qaedis and his investment scheme, his Ponzi scheme, which was modeled after the scheme run by Bernie Madoff that was outed in December of 2008 after the United States economy and the world economy collapsed due to the circumstances surrounding some subprime mortgage loans and large financial institutions. Uh, can you tell us about Bernie Madoff? What drew you to him and how he specifically influenced your character, Jonathan? Yeah, sure. So for anybody who uh, isn't familiar, uh, Madoff presided over a $65 billion, with a B, dollar uh, financial fraud. So yeah, it was a classic Ponzi scheme. Um, the returns that investors who've been in for a long time were getting were just like money that new investors were putting in. So no money was actually being invested. Um, and he was able to keep that crime going for a very long time um, until with the 2008 financial meltdown, investors started panicking and started, um, what, ha- what happened to Madoff was they started submitting withdrawal requests. They wanted to get all their money out. Mm. but the withdrawal requests um, exceeded the balance in the bank accounts. So yeah, he just kind of hit the wall there. Mm -hmm. Um, What fascinated me about that story was partly just the scale of the crime, which was extraordinary. Um, Partly this kind of air of mass delusion around it that I found really interesting. So I actually know someone who invested with Madoff. And he's a really smart, financially savvy person. He actually did my taxes for years. I don't know if I should admit that. But um, <laughs> yeah, you know, re- so my point is, like, really smart guy, great with numbers. Um, he was one of the very luckiest ones in that he didn't lose that much money and it wasn't catastrophic. Um, but what he says about it now is, he says, you know, I look at the account statements. The numbers never made sense. I could never figure out where the numbers were coming from. But the returns were so good. You know, I just kind of like shrug and accept it. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating about that is that, you know, that was the experience that everybody would have been having because mm-hmm. numbers never made sense. Um, you know, so Steven Spielberg's financial advisors, who I'm going to assume are kind of at the top of their game, like they would have been having that experience. Mm-hmm. So there was this interesting kind of mass delusion at play among the investors. Mm-hmm. But what really drew me to the story was the staff. So a crime of that scale, you know, if you're a billionaire Ponzi guy, um, you're not formatting your own fake account statements. You've got staff for that. So there were about, I want to say six or seven people who were ultimately arrested in connection with, um, with the crime, served you know, fairly short prison terms, six years, eight years. And um, at the time when the story broke, I had kind of a great day job. I was a part-time administrative assistant at a cancer research lab um, mm-hmm. at the Rockefeller University in New York. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a science background, but you know, it was admin work. Um, and what I found myself thinking about was how much I liked my coworkers, and just um, you know, you probably have it working in a bookstore too. Just kind of the sense of camaraderie that you have, you know, with the people that you show up to work with every day. Um, you know, the sense of shared mission. So I was thinking about that and then thinking how much more intense and warped and crazy would that be if you were all showing up at work on Monday to perpetuate a massive crime? I mean, that's crazy, just the level of intensity. So that was what drew me into the story. Um, And yeah, you know, my, 
my books undergo a lot of revisions because my first draft is always kind of a mess. Um, but yeah, the first part of the book that I started writing is what eventually became chapter 10 for the perspective of the Ponzi staffers. Mm. Uh, we crossed the line. That, that was obvious. It was the first line of the book that I ever wrote. Mm. So yeah, that was, that was what drew me into the story. Excellent. Thank you so much, Emily. Um, there is a scene relatively early in this novel, and in this scene, Jonathan is in prison in Florence, South Carolina, and there is a literature professor who visits this prison to teach literature to the inmates, but only the literature of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Why F. Scott Fitzgerald, and was this professor based on a real person? Uh, no, he wasn't really based on a real person, but... You know, I don't remember really what I was thinking there. Um, I think I just thought it was kind of funny. And um, and also thinking about the way, you know, one does kind of encounter people, not just in the book world, also like in the jazz world and other kind of, uh, yeah, in other places. Um, you encounter people who just kind of have their thing. And like, you know, they're not interested in anything else, just like this particular um, author, this particular musician, uh, whatever it is. So. Yeah. Yeah, the kind of narrowness of scope that you can run across. Yeah, thanks, Emily. I asked this because I studied literature at the University of South Carolina, um, near Florence, South Carolina, where there was a scholar, Matthew J. Brucali, who was one of the world's preeminent Fitzgerald scholars, and he taught oh, there for really? many years. Okay. <laughs> and I wasn't sure if the prison being in South Carolina was a uh, coincidence or not, but now I know. Little yeah. Uh, listeners, we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Emily St. John Mendel. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Emily St. John Mandel, and we are talking about her new novel, The Glass Hotel, published by our friends at Alfred A. Knopf. Emily, have you ever seen a ghost? Uh, no, but I think I photographed one once. So this is a little bit weird. Um, years ago, my husband and I were living on the Upper West Side in this one-bedroom apartment. Mm. We were leaving town for a month. We just, we'd figured out a way to spend the month of February in San Diego, where um, the company my husband works for has a branch office. Mm. So... Uh, we were taking pictures of the apartment to show to a potential subletter. And there was this kind of weird setup in the bedroom where there was a loft bed. You had to climb upstairs almost to the ceiling to get to this weird platform. Mm. So I was kind of balanced on the radiator cover trying to take pictures of it. You know, New York City apartment, so mm. it was a small room. Mm. Um, and yeah, I took all these pictures. And then I went through them later on my digital camera. One of them has a white translucent hooded figure uh, just in the left corner of the frame. Mm. And it was just one of those moments like, huh, <laughs> I, I can't explain it. Um, pictures taken before and after, like, you know, a second or two apart, don't mm. show it. 
so it's hard to say that it's you know some kind of weird reflection or something um i was alone in the room um yeah it's just really a very strange photograph um so you know i, I wouldn't say i'd seen a ghost but i did take this weird picture and you know everybody i shouldn't say everybody a lot of people who I take really seriously have ghost stories, mm. and I just have no reason to disbelieve them. So, yeah, maybe I'd, uh, maybe I'm like that guy in the X Files. You know, I want to believe. <laughs> right. Thank you so much, Emily. Um, I want to revisit another scene in the prison in Florence, South Carolina, and in this scene we have an inmate, uh, Nemirovsky, who's speaking to Jonathan Al-Qaedis about how there are two different games, money-wise. There's the game everyone knows, he says, where you work your shitty job and you get your paycheck and it's never enough. But then there's this other level, this secret game that only some people know how to play. And Emily, as I think back on this scene, I can't help but think of the mirror image presented later in the novel of the different levels of American society, the one that many of us are or were living in from day to day, and the other kind of hidden underbelly of people who have dropped out of the system and are barely making it. Can you talk about these two concepts, the different games being played with money and the different levels of American society? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the, yeah, the idea of, you know, the, the different games who played with money, that was something that I remember thinking about and hearing about a lot around the time of the 2008 financial collapse, mm. where most of us are in Amorovsky, you know, working these jobs, trying to get by. But then it turned out that all of these people at this whole other level of money, not to like parrot the book, but that is the way I think of it, mm. uh, we're just kind of playing games with the entire economy. You know, it turned out that the subprime mortgage industry, on which so much was apparently based, was such a house of cards and it collapsed so quickly. Uh, nobody was really held accountable for that. Uh, you know, so that kind of rang true to me for that era. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I remember that being a dynamic at the time, but you know, most of us are just trying to save for retirement, but some of us are just kind of moving money around and it's kind of a game and they'll be fine no matter what. Mm. So that's what I was thinking about there. Um, yeah, the different levels of American society. There are different levels in every country. Mm. I think that's probably somewhat inevitable. But we sure let people fall far in this country. Mm. Um, I had a conversation with another Canadian expat, um, Omar Ellicott. He has this wonderful book called American War. It came out a few years ago mm-hmm. that I really love. We did this in-conversation event in Brooklyn, and we were talking about uh, you know, life in the United States. We're both from Canada. And he had this wonderful quote about this country. He said, he talked about how grateful he is for the opportunities he's been afforded here, which I am too. But then he said, you know, the thing with the United States, there's no ceiling and there's no floor. And it does feel that way sometimes. Um, yeah, so I... When I thought of the shadow country, you know, I'm, I was thinking of it in terms of that layer of society that we kind of try not to see, most of us. Um, the tents underneath the expressway, the people asking for change when you stop your car, um, the people collecting cans on the street to try to get by. Um, yeah, so that was that was what I was thinking about, you know, and that's... Um, that's a level of society that's hard to look at because it's terrifying. We, I think we all kind of know in our heart of hearts that there are probably scenarios where we could end up there too. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Emily. Um, switching gears, 
later in the novel, there is a character, Mirella, who befriends Vincent. And there is a scene where they talk about the cliché of living in New York during one's 20s before moving somewhere like Atlanta or Minneapolis for a job or a house, etc. Um, can you talk about this cliché? Have you personally witnessed it or have you lived it? Um, I've witnessed it. You know, I love living in New York City. I've been here since I was 23 mm-hmm. uh, and I have no plans to leave. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of a, um, a tragedy of living in New York City is that you befriend people who leave because it's sort of fundamentally a city that people pass through a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's just really common to live here for a few years and early adulthood and then, yeah, move to Italy or back home to Ireland as two of my closest friends have done in the past yeah. decade. So, yeah, it's hard. Um, and, you know, it's amazing. My daughter's four, but mm-hmm. even she's experienced it. She's had three good friends leave the city, you know, mm-hmm. for California, Toronto, and I'm blanking on the third location, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's a thing here. Um, it's, it's kind of a hard city to live in in a lot of ways. And for me, it's interesting enough and you know, it's worth it to me to, to stay here. But yeah, a lot of people are like, you know what? Life would be a whole lot easier in Milwaukee. I don't want to take off. <laughs> yeah. I see it happen all the time. Right. Thank you so much. I personally lived in San Francisco for my 20s, and now I live in Raleigh, North Carolina, so that section yeah, rang a little bit idea. true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, thanks. Late in this novel, The Glass Hotel, um, there's someone who interviews Jonathan Alcaides and this character who you have modeled on Bernie Madoff in prison because this person is writing a book about him, and when Jonathan asks her why she is writing a book about him, um, and you spoke a little bit towards this earlier, she says, I have always been interested in mass delusion, and then she references is a cult. So, can you talk to us about the concept of mass delusion, not only as it applies in this novel towards people who are invested in a fund that pays numbers that don't make sense, but how it um, relates to cults and other aspects of society? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, just this willing. I think of mass delusion as this, just this mass willingness to go along with an idea that doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. or to follow a leader who's deranged. You know, um, you see it in politics sometimes where there are people who will follow their person, whoever that is, um, whether that person's wrong or right or whether they make sense or don't, you know, it's, uh, you see these weird kind of cult of personalities develop, cult of personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you know, with the Madoff story, this, uh, there, there was such, there was such kind of interesting stuff in there about, um, you know, about greed and like wanting to believe and fairy tales in a way. But yeah, all of these people sort of decided en masse to um, to go along with numbers that really didn't make sense. Something that fascinated me about the Madoff story is that um, the returns for his supposed investment fund, one that turned out to be a Ponzi scheme, mm-hmm. those could be graphed on a perfect 45-degree angle. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I'm not a finance person. That's not my background. I like to think that if I saw returns like that, um, I would find them surprising, but I don't know, as I say that, maybe I wouldn't. A lot of really smart people with backgrounds in this stuff were completely duped. But yeah, you know, you look at it later, and it's like, oh my God, how did anybody believe that those returns were real? But they did. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And it's like another character in the novel says, it's not that I'm not open to financial genius, but this angle is unbelievable. Um, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Emily, finally, I want to ask 
about a scene late in the novel where Paul, the half-brother of Vincent, is living conversations in his mind that he never had with Vincent, his half-sister, and he has the thought that, it turns out, having never had these conversations with Vincent meant that he was somehow condemned to always have these conversations with Vincent. Can you talk about this moment with your characters, if you like, but really the overall concept that a missed conversation is somehow a permanent conversation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It comes back to the idea of a ghost story. You know, so I realized pretty early on in writing this book that it was going to be a ghost story. And when we use that phrase, we tend to think of it in terms of kind of classical terms. Like, you know, to go back to that picture I was describing earlier, the hooded translucent figure lurking in the corner of the room. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are so many different ways of being haunted. And I wanted to think about those different ideas of hauntedness in writing the novel. So yeah, you know, one way of being haunted is to see ghosts as Jonathan does in prison. Um, Another way is to be haunted by regret, which I think most of us probably are, the things we wish we'd said or hadn't said or wish we'd done or hadn't done. But then, you know, yet another way, yeah, the the conversation that never happened, you know, between Paul and Vincent, um, to kind of be haunted by a conversation that you're dreading, and yet somehow, like, the dread is so much worse than the actual conversation would be. And, you know, as Paul discovers, like being condemned to sort of play that conversation over and over in your head, imagining how it might go, is so much worse than just having it. So, yeah, I I like the idea of him being kind of haunted by a conversation he never had. All right. Thank you so much, Emily. Listeners. I have been speaking with Emily St. John Mandel, author of The Glass Hotel, published by her friends at Alfred A. Knopf. It is likely to be the best book I will read in 2020, and as a reader... Thank you so much. Absolutely, thank you for writing it. As a reader, it's a book that I wanted to keep living in, and also a book I felt like I had lived in before. A reminder listeners that you can purchase the glass hotel from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping along with any other book you may want thank you for supporting your community bookstores and emily thank you so much for joining me my pleasure have a good day Once again, I would like to thank Emily St. John Mandel for joining me. Copies of The Glass Hotel can be ordered at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping through the month of April and possibly beyond. I would like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audio Books. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get three books for the price of one and support your community bookstores. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.